side of my fourth year of teaching. I did my undergrad at Sheffield in theology and then was fortunate enough to get on the Teach First program. Um, moved to North West London, was teaching in Hendon for two years and now I'm in my second year teaching in Hackney, um, which I'm thoroughly enjoying being in year six. Okay, I have to, I'll be honest with you. So uh, if anyone said to me, what makes the best teacher? Okay. I'd go, oh yeah, what you, what you need to do is you need to uh, go to school, go to college, uni, then have a bit of a life, then come into teaching, because then you can teach about life. For me personally, it was a case of, I knew for a long time it was something that I wanted to do, um, that I was passionate about, and I mean, teaching is a vocation, I feel like I was called to the profession, if that makes sense. It does make sense, but I mean, I was like... Um, probably 26 something like that before I thought I want to become a teacher so what was it for you at such an early age that you went yeah I want to be a teacher I think um, a lot of it comes down to my own year six teacher at primary school uh, I had a really bad year in year five my own behavior was awful and I remember really distinctly the year above me saying that you didn't want this teacher and so finding out that she was the teacher I was going to have um, and being a bit worried, but I just loved her. She was great. Really, who, just, who was that? Uh, Miss Forster. Okay, we're going to talk about Miss Forster a little bit, a little bit uh, later. In, on. In, in, yeah, a little bit later on. But that's good. Um, I just think uh, maybe maybe coming into primary school, it's okay, isn't it? But I just think sometimes if you've gone into secondary school straight away, like as a secondary school teacher, the age gap between you and mm. anybody I mean, on A level is like it's it's not that big, is it? No, it's not. I mean, it could literally be, it would have been four years if I'd started. When I first started at 22, I'd have been four years older than the, the oldest students in the school. And I think sometimes it has had a, a negative impact in terms of the way that some children view me as their teacher when they see that I'm quite young. And they kind of, I think sometimes they think like, oh, what does he know? How can he, what's he doing here? Um, but I mean, ultimately, I think it, it doesn't and make a difference in terms of my own practice. But you know, when you came to the school, um, did you, cause there, there was some sort of like, there was some, oh, just, I'd only been teaching for two years. I was very used to year four. Um, and I don't think I was quite in my mind, wasn't quite ready for the kind of pressure that I think year six mm. holds as a teacher in terms of results, in terms of getting them ready for SAT. I've, I've always felt year six teachers that are a special breed. And I mean that because it's a different way of teaching that year, you definitely, I, I think, to 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 teach year six successfully, you really have to be able to connect to the children. Mm, I think in teaching in general, connections are one of the most important yeah. things that make that makes the difference between those that are really good teachers and those that are average. Yeah, is whether or not you can make real connections with the children that you're teaching on their level. Mm. So you're you're happy with the decision of uh, coming to teaching. You don't regret it. No, not at all. I think this is me for for the foreseeable future, really. Yeah, and you, and you're happy in year six now. <laughs> I am now. Yeah, I think, and it was a good thing to do. I think I definitely learned a lot being in year six. Yeah, I think my own kind of development as a teacher has definitely kind of been fast tracked. Um, for yeah. because I'm in year six, I think you kind of yeah, you really yeah, you get definitely. to. You have to develop yeah. quickly in year six to catch. So, up. was there any teaching in your family at all? Uh, no, no. I was actually. No. The, I'm the first to go to university in my family. Um, oh, okay. I'm the first to be in this kind of profession. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Okay, great. Let's move on. 
So, uh, Jordan, I have to ask you this question because I ask everybody, okay, all my co-hosts, and uh, well, I just I just come out and ask it, okay? Are you a monarchist? I'm a, I'm not, no, anti-monarchist quite strongly. Okay, talk to me. I just think it's a redundant principle now to be. Uh, my my main issue is the is the sovereignty through birth, hereditary rule. Um, I really don't agree with the fact that there's no election. We don't choose um, the positions they're born into. It, and I just think it's such a date, an outdated concept in 2018 in the modern world. We just no longer need them. So, uh, yeah, I- I'm anti-monarchist anyway, but I have to ask you this question. You're a fan of Napoleon, right? Huge. Did he not? Did he not play some of his uh, siblings on thrones around yes, the world? Yes, he did completely. A, a few, actually. Yeah. Uh, is that Italy, okay. Spain. I put a good friend in Sweden. <clears throat> was that? That's bad, right? Different time. Different time. <laughs> you can't judge. You can't judge. You can't judge twenty-first century Europe on eighteenth-century principles. So, if I had asked you that question about the monarchy two hundred years ago, or whatever, and I'd probably been well. If I was French, I'd have been all down with them, and I'd have probably. All right, you know, right, okay. Raiding Louis the Sixteenth head yeah, yeah. around the, the Paris, yeah. Um, then just to get a, a consul, really, an emperor instead. Yeah, bec- yeah. I suppose it's. Uh, I don't know. These political systems, to me, they just all roll into one at the end of the day. I think ultimately it makes a little difference, but for me, in terms of the UK, we've got our parliament. Mm-hmm. Um, there are elected officials who, whether you disagree or agree with what they're doing, are there in a sort of justified manner. Mm. Um, the fact that the Queen could, not I think it'd be kind of career-ending for her, but the fact that the Queen can overrule laws in Parliament, I just think is a sin. Yeah, she has the right to do that. Yeah. Apparently, I mean, whether or not she, she ever does, did it, but maybe she does. But she could. Mm. And I think the fact that she could interfere in our political system. Well, that's the thing for me, because they're not supposed to interfere, but there is very clear evidence that Prince Charles definitely interferes with the political system. But then there's also other things that they've done, like not too long ago, I mean, it got brushed over quite quickly in the press, but the um, some of the investments that the sort of the Queen's uh, makes, like not her herself, but people for her, and she was investing in Bright House, which is a, you know, the chain of high street things where people end up paying Absolutely. far beyond the actual price of an item in instalments. And so she was profiting from the poorest of her own, kind of subjects which seems a little bit yeah off key for me sounds about right to me <laughs> to be honest from from that lot okay i th- i thought um I'd, oh i thought if i get someone who who's anti-monarchist i thought we could have a really long chat but that's a different podcast so i'm just gonna i'm gonna sit here and go yeah i'm not the only one that's good all right let's move on vive republic <laughs> Okay, so I want to talk. Uh, well, I want to let you talk now about your um, your fab fab four plus one favorite teacher, favorite book, favorite film, 
favourite piece of music and your one person that you'd uh, invite around for dindins and have a nice chat with, dead or alive, uh, famous or not. Okay, so um, let's start off. Your favourite teacher? Uh, Miss Forster, who was my year six teacher. Um, she was just, re- I think she really, I had quite a bad year in year five uh, with behaviour. I wasn't kind of going off the rails a little bit. I think she just really helped me to hone in um, on my learning and kind of enjoy school again for the sake of, you know, enjoying it. Um, also helped kind of flourish my kind of love of kind of sort of rock music. Um, and so there was lots, there was lots of kind of, it was more the social kind of development side in year six. I think that Miss Forster kind of really got right for me. Um, and I mean, up until I've, I've go back and visit still regularly and I still kind of keep a dialogue with Miss Forster. Um, she knows obviously now that I'm a teacher as well and all of those kind of things. It's been a really nice kind of past school relationship um, as well that developed through that. And I think it's very mutual. Uh, did, did, did you dislike school before? I did in year five. I was always, I've always quite been quite enjoyed school but I think year five we had a teacher that um we just kind of were able to take the mick with really um and I think we all quite a few of us kind of went off the rails a little bit I think I can became quite despondent with school um but then year six luckily kind of got back on track uh, and was this in Birmingham this was in Birmingham yeah right. okay um, yeah <laughs> that was a bit of a the, that was my attempt at a brummy accent yeah it was, it was bad yeah, it um, was bad but you did it not as bad as the, the accent itself but it, it was won't bad be the first time i've heard it nor the last um <laughs> yeah when you say oh you're from birmingham everyone likes to go birmingham birmingham yeah or birmingham yeah. as they say in london yeah i i used to know someone um uh in from the black country oh the black country yeah. is thick Dud- that is a yeah yeah that Dud- is a thick Dud- accent yam Dud- yam Dudley. how am you yeah yeah very much so yeah Yes, yeah. I've got a lot of family from West Bromwich. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's, it's a it's a tough accent to deal with at times. Yeah, I I knew uh, this guy. He, he come from he come from Dudley and uh, was in the army, and we didn't. There was all of us in the same billet room, and we didn't know each other. And he thought he was trying to make friends with us all, so uh, he decided that he would offer everyone there some sweets. But of course. They don't call sweets sweets up there. They call them sucks. And he goes, going, man, what would, you, would you like a sock? Would you like a sock? <laughs> he made friends very quickly, to say, <laughs> when times were bad. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, okay. Because what, what I find interesting about that choice is it's a primary school teacher. And a lot of people, when they thought about favourite teachers, they normally go to the secondary school, don't they? Yes, I mean, I do have a favourite secondary school teacher as well, Mr Hill, who was my English teacher. I had him mm. for four out of my seven years. Um, again, similar kind of thing, I think, just very much kind of got who I was and kind of helped kind of, you know, focus me in English, which was a subject I always quite enjoyed anyway. Um, but no, I think I think maybe because I'm a primary school teacher, I think perhaps maybe some of the primary school memories are a bit more prominent in my mind. And I think a lot of the reason why I went into teaching, and primary in particular, because I did have such positive memories of primary school overall and um, was kind of looking to hopefully be able to give that same experience to other children, really. And what did she say when she knows that you're, you're a teacher now? Is she pleased? Yeah, I think, and I think she knows really that it was ultimately following her kind of lead on that one as well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think, she's, I think she's very pleased to kind of have seen me kind of grow up and... I love those. Following I love, the footsteps. I love those stories. Yeah, it's there's sweet. some it's children nice. that we, that have left our school, and you see them. They come back and visit, and 
There's one or two of them that say they're going to be teachers. I'd love it if they turned into teachers. It'd be brilliant. I think there's a, there's a couple of children that I mentioned in my class currently, and yeah. again, if they if I one day found out that some of them um, had had blossomed into young teachers, they're great stories, aren't they? Be, it would be a moment of pride for me. I yeah, think, it is. To see that, I, I agree. Okay, your favourite book. Um, I mean, this is this was a tough one because you can't. I think to choose one book is, and same with this, lots of these questions you're about to ask me. To choose one is very difficult. Yeah, I've gone for nine um, Animal Farm nine, by George Orwell. Yeah, not nineteen eighty four um, by George. No, Animal Farm. Yeah, nineteen eighty four could also be up there, I suppose. Yeah. Um, the reason I've chosen that book is because I think the way that Orwell has condensed and almost kind of well allegorized, but almost kind of satirized. The, the whole Russian Revolution and the rise of sort of Stalin and communism to bring, you know, kind of coming into kind of the Cold War context um, it, within 94 pages while creating in the context of a farm without ever mentioning any of the words or names directly. Like communism is not mentioned. I think it's just superb. It's probably the book that I've read the most number of times. Mm. And in year nine, I did get my starring role as Benjamin the Donkey, who I think I do resonate with quite strongly as a character and a person. <laughs> um, so your love of this book was nothing to do with the fact that one of the main characters there was Napoleon. No, well, I mean, the name obviously is um, is the same, but I suppose the character is completely different. That's the Stalin um, as opposed to the great man himself, Napoleon. Um, mm. Great only in name, shall we say, in the book, as opposed to the man himself. So, did you, I mean, in choosing that book, were you a fan, I mean, were you a fan of Orwell's, anyway, and whatever he's written, or was it, I'm just interested, why that book? Um, I, I think that book is, 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 again, it's just a beautiful allegory mm. of, of the whole situation in Russia at the time with the with the Bolshevik Revolution, um, you know Trotsky and Stalin and that power dynamic after kind of Lenin and Marx kind of particularly Lenin had died um, and I think I, th- I think for me it's just the simplicity of Orwell's writing um, you know to write in an Orwellian fashion is to remove kind of any words that aren't needed um, mm. and and I think again he's, the way he can re- extract it to a very base position yet still beautifully depict the entire situation is a skill that not many authors have so he's i think he's quite unique in that ability to say so much with so few words and and did you choose not to do 19 uh, choose 1984 because it's so depressing <laughs> even uh, though even though I we're mean, really living in yeah this i mean it's now, depressing but i mean it's, it's kind of quite real still isn't it and i think we're starting to kind of see elements of 1984 you should have called it 2014 perhaps if you wanted to yeah kind of keep you know be a bit more actually a bit more accurate um but no, I, I don't. I didn't choose Animal Farm because I mean, Animal Farm is a depressing book. Mm. You know, they they kill Boxer, mm. the kind of the the ideal of the kind of worker. Mm. Um, you know, Napoleon is always right. I will work harder. Mm. Um, they kill him off for glue. The farmers are horrible to them. The pigs end up, you know, just as with uh, communist Russia, the pigs end up kind of completely um, undermining and kind of um, abusing their own the animals themselves the whole four legs good two legs bad mm. all animals are equal but some are more equal than others yeah. i think does still yeah. ring really true and epitomize kind of a lot mm. of modern society the same really so i think it's i think that's why i chose it because i think you can even though it's a context is russia 
I think you still can draw parallels to so much of what's going on around us. Definitely. I agree. I, I would agree with that. Now, I've, I've had to take a, two coffees before before this before you answer this question because I know, because I know what you're going to say so I, there almost has to be a warning to everyone who's listening uh when I when I because I'm going to ask you your favorite film and there's been some classic films in our times you know from I mean there's been truly amazing films and there's been some truly awful films that's what I'm going to say um Jordan what is your favorite film of all time in the history of every single film that's ever been made? What is your favorite film? Okay, I feel like you're setting me up here. Not at uh, all. For my film to not sound like it should be mentioned in the favorite films of all time section. Uh, but my favorite film of all time is A Big Trouble in Little China featuring Kurt Russell in his prime. Do you see I'm holding the silence there? I'm just waiting for everyone to pick themselves back off the floor okay come on then tell me it's just such a silly film um the the directing is simple there's kind of there's not there's not too much to it there's no kind it's not flashy it's not high tech it's just uh throwaway lines uh, absurdity um and just a bit of fun really wrapped up into but two hours i'm not disagreeing because it's your favorite film so i can't disagree with it but i just want to get to the to the bottom of why it's your favorite film. The way you've just described that film, I would agree with you. It's almost like a guilty pleasure film, you perhaps, know, perhaps. Um, so would you not say that there's, there's loads of films out there like that? What, what there makes, are, what nothing, makes that different? It's the throwaway lines that Jack Burton just, okay. Give me some, throw, the, give me okay. some throwaway lines then. Okay. You people sit tight, hold the fort and keep the home fires burning. And if we're not back um, by dawn, call the president. It's just, uh, you know, I'm a reasonable guy, but I'm experiencing really unreasonable things. This is so you, Jordan. I, I shouldn't be surprised that that uh, that you've chosen it. All right, then. Had to go for a niche film. It, it is a real niche film, yeah. It, it makes me want to go and look, watch it now. I mean, I think you'd definitely be happier. I do like it. I do like the film. watching Big Trouble in Little China and probably sat here talking to me about it. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, we're going to end that one there. Okay, um, now your favourite piece of music. Again, this is this is a, a really particularly with music. I find that I found this one probably the hardest because I think if you ask me week on week, my favourite song would would change, um, even though probably in the same kind of genre of music. Um, but if I had to pick one, I think I've chosen this would be the place. Uh, this must be the place by Talking Heads. Um, it's just such a such a beautiful little melody, so simple, such a simple love song. Um, that yeah, I think I could. This is the sort of song that I could listen to and repeat. So um, this was this was a song that was uh, probably released around about ten years before you were born. Yeah, nineteen eighty three. Yeah, how did you get to? Um, how did it get into your psyche? Um, I don't really listen to many mus- much music, probably post 2000 a lot of my music is probably 80s 70s 60s um at quite a young age i discovered quite a passion for heavy metal uh, bands like iron maiden black sabbath um in particular i think ozzy osbourne was always kind of a favorite mm. for me kind of mm. growing up where and kind of knowing he was kind of from where i was from 
But then kind of Bruce Dickinson, the lead singer of Iron Maiden's kind of vocals are just, his range is just so impressive. And I think the thing about heavy metal is that it's one of those genres of music that people are quite kind of fearful of or reluctant to listen to. But actually it's really quite melodic and it's one of those that I really like because you can play it in the classroom because you guarantee there are very few songs that swear or have mm. particularly explicit references. And I think that's what puts me off a lot of modern music is kind of how mm. farcical it's become really mm. and how kind of commercial and sexualized, um, which for me kind of ruins mm. it, which is why I think I've chosen This Must Be The Place because... So how, how do you, what was the transition? I mean, obviously you probably could have chosen a heavy metal song as well, but what, what's the transition? transition from your heavy metal likings to talking heads um good question i think just kind of growing up a little bit and i was maturing um i think heavy metal is still a bit of a passion but there's only so much of it you can listen to at all times it doesn't fit all moods and actually sometimes you just need a bit of kind of melancholy uh, in your life which heavy metal can't provide yeah. yeah i think it's a great choice by the way thank you yeah uh now david, david byrne yeah yeah he's gone on to do great solo stuff as well um uh, since since talking heads but he seems like an all-round good guy yeah. as well i always yeah. get that from things Very i've read about him guy. seems just like a nice yeah. person yeah. which i think is a commodity that we kind of overlook now okay that was your fave fab four and this is your plus one now anyone who knows jordan o'brien right that's my name yeah uh will know who, what this who your dinner guest is going to be. Uh, but for those of us, for those of people who don't know you, who's your guest going to be? Uh, it's going to be the, the big man himself, or the not so big man himself, particularly if you believe the British propaganda at the time, uh, Napoleon Bonaparte. Mm. Um, see, I regard you as an expert on Napoleon. I think that's probably pushing. But, the... but where, where comp- well, let's put it this way. I, I can pay, I, I, I I believe you're an expert compared, comparable so to everyone, comparable person, to everyone yeah. else that I know. Um, before we talk about him, what what got you in, into that? Was it something at uni that you looked? No, not at all. It was quite a kind of freak coming across it. I bought a book called Napoleon the Great by Andrew Roberts. Um, like an eight hundred and eighty odd pages, very small text mm. uh, biography of his life. I bought it on a kind of whim, really, and quite quickly I started to kind of realise that actually there was something that really kind of sparked in me about Napoleon um, and just his kind of, just the life he led was so, he's from very small, humble beginnings and to become the Emperor of France not once but twice is I just think one of those beautiful kind of, even if sometimes some of the things he did by modern standards you might not agree with. Um, Give me an example. Uh, the massacre at Jafar, for example, mm. 3,000 mm. uh, Egyptians shot, mm. um, even when they were trying to run. Mm-hmm. Many drowned trying to escape through the Nile, um, but just butchered uh, by French troops in Egypt. And, and when, when, they were, when they were drowning in the Nile, was, uh, was Napoleon in complete denial? <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> I knew where that was going. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> That was a Jordan joke, by the way, I, I think more so. Yeah, continue, sorry. Um, I've lost my train of thought yeah. now. Um, where was I? Was I just you, you were talking about, you were talking about uh, some of the things that, you know, he did at that time that 
Uh, yeah, I, I it would get be it. Frowned on. And and uh, well, in, before that, I think you know, in terms of the rise to to being the emperor of France and stuff, he did do lots of really good things for the French economy for the kind of French position. I mean, he created the Napoleonic Code. Uh, is now used still, I believe, in about forty odd countries around the world. Use mm. that as the basis of their system of law. Uh, even little things like the fact numbers, uh, house numbers on streets are up, evens on one side and odds on the other. That's a Napoleonic. Uh, All right, okay. Concept so, that he brought in that then kind of spread around Europe, particularly through the use of the continental system. How those pesky French they get everywhere, don't yeah. they? Right, yeah, okay. Especially. So, did you follow that? Did you follow? Did your um, interest in Napoleon, did that follow from, I mean, was there an interest in the French Revolution? Not particularly, no. It was. Yeah. It, kind of, it came the other way around for me, right. in that I kind of discovered an interest in Napoleon and a bit of a fascination with the man uh, and his life. And then from that, I mean, you can't really understand Napoleon without understanding the French Revolution. Absolutely. He's a product of it. Yeah. And epitomized in many ways, despite being the emperor, yeah. kind of epitomized the values of revolution um, and the kind of the republic, essentially, mm. um, and the kind of new age for France. So imagine you're sitting down there, sitting down with for din, dinner. What's the question you would ask him? Ooh, one question to ask Napoleon. Mm. Well, I guess you can ask him a few. What, what would be the first question you would ask him? I think my first one would be, why did you stay in Moscow for so long? In the disastrous campaign of 1812, um, there were quite several points on the journey where he could have turned around and losses would have been significantly reduced. Um, but do you think that was because of he was, that was the man, that, that was almost, that failure was always the, almost the making of the legend of the man? I don't... No, I don't agree with that because I don't think people remember Napoleon for Russia in particular. I think when you think of Napoleon and the downfall, you think of Waterloo. Mm. Um, not many people seem to be that aware of a lot of the victories, really, for Napoleon. A lot of people kind of think that Napoleon was this big warmonger, um, which, I mean, he enjoyed war, certainly, and he was good at it as a general. Um, but he only actually ever fought two offensive campaigns out of the seven wars that he was involved in, um, which, you know... If you're defending your country, it's a very different um, kind of outlook on fighting than if you are actively invading mm. um, someone. And I think perhaps he was got a bit big for his boots with Russia, kind of was too tempted by the... So throwing that question back at you, what do you think he would say to you? I think if we're honest, uh, and Napoleon was honest, I think that he... Um, probably wouldn't tell me really why he'd probably as he did when he was exiled on St. Helena before he died he was everyone else's fault which I think is also a classic kind of sign of the kind of the, the genius but also the madness that kind of creates mm. genius is that inability to process your own kind and, of faults and and so getting back to Waterloo then um I'm 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 no expert but am I right in saying that, that, that there was a point during that battle that he could have one, if it wasn't for the Prussians, uh, so like you, we couldn't have like like. There's no way that could have been won so on our own. There's several arguments for how he could have won Waterloo. Mm. He did send a detachment to chase the Prussians, who lost them. So he lost a portion of his army, and then the Prussians did. I think under Bolcher mm. around the right flank, which was basically the deciding point of the battle. Mm. Uh, some would argue that even if the Prussians hadn't come, Wellington would have still won that particular day. 
there was a couple of failed cavalry charges by um, General Ney, mm. uh, which kind of put the French at quite a disadvantage, particularly again on the right flank. Um, but there are there are several reasons how he could have won. A lot of it at this point in time, eighteen um, fifteen, it's only six years until he died, and he was his stomach was incredibly cancerous when it, when they when they opened him up. And the, the the doctors couldn't believe that he'd been alive for as long as he ca- he was. Sorry, yeah. uh, with all of these kind of tumours mm. just developed in his um, stomach, um, and a lot of it was illness. A lot of the kind of his and illness stopped him from being the general that he could have been. Mm. In his previous victories, you know, of Austerlitz, Marengo, um, the main deciding factors were that Napoleon apparently seemed to be everywhere directing his troops himself. Whereas in this battle, uh, he took more of a far much more of a back um back seat back seat mm. and kind of allowed his marshals to do a bit more but out of kind of an inability to do rather than a kind of trusting mm. uh his marshals to get on with it he kind of he couldn't be the general that he was he kind of lost his he's lost his vigor i think at that yeah. point i think the years of of campaigns had finally caught up with him so i uh, if you think about it um i mean everyone was very frustrated with Napoleon at the time and he's done this to Europe and that to Europe. Do you think history has been kind to him? No. Um, and I think Andrew Roberts is doing a great job of trying to change that con- the kind of mm. the outlook people think about Napoleon. Andrew Roberts? Um, Andrew Roberts, historian. Right. Um, the author of Napoleon the Great and mm-hmm. actually um, Napoleon and Wellington, which is quite a nice book, kind of detailing the two generals um and they're very different very different characters um but no again i think the kind of whole concept of napoleon being short the napoleon napoleonic complex if you're kind of very aggressive um you know all these kind of little kind of quirk, social quirks that we, when we think of napoleon i think suggest that perhaps we we don't have the particular particularly good um but isn't he in, in, in military in, in military rounds? He's he's regarded as a well, one of the of best generals. That is, yeah, he's up there with Alexander the Great. Yeah, uh, uh, Hannibal, uh, Tiller. Um, and you don't think his Russian expedition has has, has dented or did played played a part I mean, in yeah, denting of, that? Of really. course, it knocked because he didn't. You know, he, it was a, it was a huge. It wasn't just a loss. It was a it was a shambles. It was. Um, Horrific, really, in fact, uh, the lack of concern for his troops. 300,000 Frenchmen died just on the way back. Reports of Frenchmen, you would find Frenchmen who had frozen uh, by trees and stuff, but then when you looked at them there, they'd taken some of their own thigh flesh off to eat because they were that hungry. Uh, horses, the same, were you know, slaughtered at the first chance. Uh, people, you know, pushing and shoving to get try and get back, and women, children also, you know, murdered on the road. Uh, by both Cossacks and the cold, um, so I think yeah, you can't you can't have a a campaign like that goes so badly and it not knock your record. But I think if you look at most armies and their kind of records themselves, there would always there's always a blemish. Yes, mm. uh, and I think in a way, perhaps while awful, when you think of the the loss of life, perhaps helps him to be a bit more human. Um, at the same time, I think it was quite a good thing for him in kind of his own view of himself to kind of bring him down a peg Mm. okay
Okay, so we're going to get on to the real business today, and that's educational matters, of course. Um, hey, but before I do, I just want to, I just, I just remembered something, actually. I just want to, if you, I want to talk to you about something that's making me completely outraged um, that I found yesterday, and it was this. Tell me what you think about this. So the BBC, so here's the thing, okay, there are no league tables as such, okay, but the BBC have got all the school's information together and have produced school league tables. I hate the BBC, right? And then they come up with this report a couple of days ago, and the headline is this. Poor pupils, right, won't catch up for 50 years. Is that the most pathetic, stupid headline ever? Uh, That's uh, like, you know, I, I was a very poor child, it hasn't taken me 50 years to catch up. It's the most ridiculous... I'd be really interested to see where they're pulling uh, the information from and how they've, how they've um, they, you know, dissected it to come up with that particular headline. There's definite links between socioeconomic backgrounds and uh, kind of earnings later on in life with a trend definitely towards um, those in lower socioeconomic backgrounds uh, finding it more difficult to get higher paid jobs than those that are from higher socio-economic backgrounds. But I think 50 years sounds a little bit outrageous. 50 years is ridiculous. It's, it's because if... The, and what actually, if you turn it around on its head, if you haven't bridged that gap in 50 years, you're, you're not, not going to bridge the gap. Someone, someone that went through school in the, in the 70s is still struggling desperately still to try and catch up. Still struggling, all because they were poor when they were young. Yeah. I mean, that just means that's like saying... Uh, just the headline. Not some poor pupils no, won't well, catch yeah, up. It's, it's poor pupils won't catch up for 50 years. It's just giving up on them already, isn't it? Let's give up now. Because <laughs> Don't are bother. You, you're poor. You're not going to make anything of yourself. You're a poor pupil, right? You haven't passed your SATs. You're done for. If you can keep yourself busy for the next 50 years, then we'll see what can happen <laughs> after that. It's crazy. Well, like they'll wake up 50 years later and suddenly... Uh, have more money. <laughs> Unbelievable. We want to talk about today, don't we, the um, the role of education ministers. Yeah. Okay. And I just was looking at the roll call of education secretaries since I've become a teacher. So I've been a teacher now for about 20 years. Okay. And since that time, I counted there have been 11 education ministers. All right. Now, so if you average that out, they're staying in post on average. Less than two years. How can you possibly sort out an education system if you're in post for less than two years? Because you can't, and then, and they haven't. No, not at all. I think we've, particularly in the last eight years, we've seen some quite shocking um, education winners. I think starting with Gove, really. Um, well, the, what's really sad about this? Gove is the longest serving one there. He, yeah, two thousand and ten to two thousand and fourteen. Yeah, he did four four years, and he, as the longest serving one, he, the, the education system in this country it's, is where yeah. it is today because of him. It's his education system. I mean, it's a total chaotic disaster at the moment, and to get out, well, I don't know how we're going to get out of it, to be honest. Um, so then I thought. Oh, let's have a look at and see what jobs they did before. Because I don't mind people being education secretaries if they've got uh, um, 
some experience of education. I think it's the biggest problem with our political system in general. Is not just in education, but in all of the ministries. Uh, it seems that you know you don't have any experts leading it um, directly. And obviously, there are experts involved behind the scenes that we don't see, particularly you know, with the civil service. Um, but I think it's such a shame that, like with the whole Jeremy Hunt and the junior doctors a few years ago, um, how is someone that's never worked in a hospital trying to tell people how what that work in hospitals how to work in a hospital? And but, it transfers again for teaching. Why is someone that has never stepped foot in a classroom as a teacher telling me remotely how to teach when I'm in a classroom? But it goes back to our education. Uh, it goes back <coughs> to our political system that we have here. And when you look at it, actually. Politicians do not run this country. The civil service yeah. run this country. Bureaucrats. Because, yeah, because they are the only constant in an ever-changing political scene. doesn't matter who's in power, they're still going to have the same civil mm -hmm. servants to guide them and guide policy. Um, if you look at... Uh, well, let's go back to Jeremy Hunt because he's annoying. He became the longest-serving health secretary ever. It's a mess continues to be a mess after he left. But he left and got promoted. And he, I mean, Boris Johnson was bad enough as um, foreign secretary. But now David, sorry, sorry not David, um, was he, is it Hunt? What's his first name? Jeremy. Jeremy. Jeremy Hunt is our foreign secretary. He's representative of our country around the world. Boris Johnson's foreign secretary. No, he's not. When did that change? Uh, about six, seven months ago. Really? Yeah. Boris Johnson is no more. But in fact, Boris Johnson's gone very, very quiet now. Yeah, well, he might be making his bid for the next yeah, election. Can you see him getting into power? No, I hope not. I don't think... I don't... I mean, the biggest thing for me, the scary thing, and I am, you know, predominantly a socialist type of guy, mm -hmm. I still find it a terrifying choice if you had Boris Johnson or Jeremy Corbyn. I think, again, the problem for a lot of people is that there's no one at the moment. I think it's why you saw the rise of Trump, is that there's, people are feeling quite despondent with the political There's class. no leaders, are there? No one's coming through that no. really or makes you... people. Mm. Yeah, that really makes you go, I really believe in this person. I think they really genuinely do good. I think Corbyn had that for a short period of time. Agreed. And kind of, as more time's gone on, more cracks are showing in mm. his political outlook. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't fill you with confidence, does it? No. Well, actually, I like Corbyn. I like him, and I like what he says. It's the people he has around mm, him. But I also think that it'd be if Corbyn were to come into power, it'd be quite a protest vote, and just again a bit like Trump looking for a change from the kind of Tory system of late. You know, since well, since Blair and Brown, we haven't had a Labour um, government in quite a long time now. I think people are getting quite despondent with, with the Tories and their constant seem cutting mm. and um, policies that seem to help the, the, the those that already have the most. I mean, we saw this in France um, over the last couple of weeks, really. A lot of the protesting about certain policies that Macron put in place, which again supported the kind of top 1% while harming the kind of the, the 99. And I mean, the protests there uh, were, were crazy. Um, from what I saw. And he was supposed to be the saviour, wasn't he? He, he came he in as a golden boy of Europe. Um, he's no longer... New party, new politics. Is, he has dulled. His shine is gone. 
you know, but but you know, the French they sort out their politicians very very quickly. Well, they're very good. At, they're very good <laughs> at, at, um, at protesting. They're brilliant yeah. at it. But I mean, it worked. He's he's reduced some of these policies. He has, he's he's yeah. changed them. Yeah. So I think perhaps what we're lacking, our stiff upper lip, being British, I think stops us from coming to the streets. Listen, I, I was um, I was around in the seventies and the eighties, and it was all full of protest then. And I look now, and I just think. Where are those? Where are we? We do not protest anymore. We walk down, we walk down the streets of London, and with placards and that. And it, so what? It doesn't. doesn't nothing stop happens. Anything. It doesn't change anything. No, no, not at all. Um, anyway, um, so let's start with Gove. Uh, destroyer of education, as far as I'm concerned. Curriculum. Right. I I was kind of lucky that I kind of slightly missed Gove. I think I started teaching the year. As he left, I came in. Yeah, 2014. Yeah, left. and that's yeah. when I started teaching. Yeah, uh, or the year after, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, uh, he, he's uh, a journalist. That's what he began as. Yes, but yeah. So on this list, actually, on this list, we've got a couple of journalists. So David, Bl- so so I I started uh, 90, 98. David Blunkett, Labour Party were in power, um, ninety seven to two thousand one. Now I don't actually know too much what he did. He's the only one I'm not too sure about. Although, you know, he had a real... I know, forget, he, if you put his blindness to one side, he had a horrendous childhood, David Blunkett. I don't know much about yeah, him. Yeah, he... Um, when he was young, he was, like, really, really poor. But the reason that he was poor was that his dad... I'm not sure where he worked, but he fell into a vat of... of um, fat or whatever and, and died a month later. Can you believe that? And they wouldn't give his family his pension rights for some reason. So for two years they had no money, his family. So he really did come from a poor black man. Yeah. Plus he was, he was blind and he got all through that. So, uh, yeah, we'll put David Blunkett to one side and we'll, I'll let him off. Um, now Estelle Morris, she lasted one year and she's the only education secretary in my time who was a teacher. 2001, 2002. And the reason she resigned was because she felt she wasn't up to the job. It's under yeah. Tony Blair. Um, the unions walked out on her on her um, speeches because she was... she. The reason we have private companies in education now is because of Estelle Morris. She opened up the system and the unions weren't happy and now we're full of it. We're full of, full of private companies. I mean, it's... Might as well be private schools. That I don't even... Don't, don't, get me, don't even get me there on Harris schools, okay? Uh, because, yeah... Uh, then you got Charles Clark. He he was there for two years, two thousand and four. Don't know too much about him, um, but he apart from the fact he was a Hackney boy, and is a Hackney boy, is Charles Clark, but uh, useless. Um, Ruth Kelly, two thousand six, another two years. Apparently, um, had an affair with David Miliband. <laughs> that is a fact, but was a journalist. Another journalist. Well, I wonder if you could make the argument that perhaps with New Labour and how um, kind of publicly political they'd be, the kind of politics became really public, especially under the likes of like um, Alistair Campbell and the kind of spin factory, that perhaps actually this is why we're now seeing so many journalists get into politics is because a lot of politics now is essentially how to come across, uh, which journalists, the ones that kind of decide that and therefore perhaps I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. Um, There's some good people in education and maybe they've not had an educational background. But what these politicians do is they prove the fact that they are 
They prove the fact that they've had no educational mm. background. But your heart being in the right the place is simply just not enough. Well, I don't think their hearts have been in the right place. No, but even for those that, that I think do want to do some good, mm. uh, just the, the, the desire to do good in and of itself isn't quite enough to necessarily carry that through and actually do good. Yeah. Um, so Alan Johnson was next, and he, he just he did it for, uh, how long did he do it for? Barely a year. Now, Alan Johnson, I have to say, if you want to read a, a memoir, uh, read his. It's called This Boy. It's about his childhood, very rough childhood, uh, basically brought up by his sister. Um, and uh, he was a full-time union union official. But again, still nothing in education. I mean, when we say that they don't have experience in education, everyone has experience in education. Well, everyone's been through Because everyone's system, been yeah. through, through the school, through the system. And so I, I do get that. But, uh, but it's completely different. Um it's a completely different ball game when you're leading the classroom as opposed to when you're sitting back and being in the class. Yeah, but but even I mean, to come out with policies that that some civil servant has come up with again because every you know I've always said to kick some agenda in education. Boxes. Yeah, education needs to be taken out of politics, or you need to take the politics out of education. You you, you shouldn't be. I mean, the worst case was Michael Gove. Before he came in, uh, Labour had set up all this brand new curriculum. Uh, it was already there's lots, of, millions of pounds were spent. Schools across the country, certainly primary school, ready to get this up and running in September. The Conservatives came in in May, and the first thing he did was scrap it. So we then left in December with what are we going to do? That was the chaos. Um, then there was Ed Balls. No, sorry, it's a guy called John Denham, but I don't remember him at all uh, for a couple of years. And then Ed Balls. Now, Ed Balls had no teaching, uh, had no um, uh, education background, but I didn't know this. I don't know if you, have you heard of Ed Balls? I know who Ed Balls is. Yeah, yeah. so he's been on TV, did yeah. the Trump, uh, Trump's yes, America. And he did Strictly. And did Strictly. Now, when he, was, when he was a politician, he wasn't like that much, Ed Balls, but then he's been on TV and everyone suddenly likes him and I had I didn't see the Trump show. He's married to Yvette Cooper, I believe. He is indeed. He is indeed. Uh who I thought should have should have been I thought she would have made a very good Labour leader. Leader. Over Corbyn, I agree. Yeah. I think she'd have got more votes. So do I. Um but he actually lived in America. He was a teaching fellow at Harvard. So I suppose he's got a bit of experience, but again, nothing to do with schools as such. No. Um, and then we just, um, and then you've got, you know, Michael Gove, the journalist, Nicky, Nicky Morgan. He was useless. Who was an absolute, absolute wet blanket. Wet blanket puppet head. Same with Greening, actually. And I she, saw. And she, well, Greening, I don't know. I mean, Nicky Morgan was a lawyer. That's what she trained as, right? Now, Justin Greening, also no, no experience of uh, education, but she was an, and trained as an accountant. Justin Greening wasn't too bad, you know. I just, don't think she just she did was. nothing for me. I just felt that she was just she didn't have any any gusto about her, any real passion. I felt that she really was someone that epitomized what I think is wrong with a lot of the ministers that mm. we have in this country. So little enthusiasm past her own image and her own career. I don't feel like her heart was at least with Gove bringing things in. At least he was trying to do something. Whether or not you agree with what he did, at least there was a Element I, I, I felt Justin Greening there. I felt Justin Greening. I, I find with Justin Greening, she was just empty. I felt she 
I felt she was trying to do what was right for schools. I mean, she was the one, in effect, the, the reason she, she lost her job was because she was so anti-grammar schools. She was anti a lot of what the government was saying. And that's why she fell out with Theresa May. And that's why she ultimately went. Um, so I don't know if I agree with that. I mean, I'm not saying she was she was brilliant because none of them were brilliant under the Conservatives. None of them have been brilliant. And then we end up now with Damien Hines. I think that's, I think. I yeah, Hines, that's what I would go with. It could be Hines. Yeah. But I would definitely go with Hines personally. And his so background. He's always for, write in and correct us. I'm sure he will. Uh, his background for 18 years, he was he he was in the pubs, um, the pubs and brewing hotel industries. So I suppose that resonates with teachers <laughs> on a Friday night. Yeah. <laughs> After yeah, at the end of each week. Now he, I have to say, I haven't seen much action from him, but that's understandable because of Brexit. You're not going to see much. No. Yeah. He is definitely. It's early days, but he's definitely talking the talk for me. He's been a surprise. Elaborate. He, when he came in, I thought, oh no, this is one bad dude. I mean, he was very much into, you know, the um, the religious, you know, the, the, the Catholic schools and that, the, the, about the 50% cap and stuff like that. They only could only have 50% of their, or they can only have 50% of their pupils as Catholics and they have, the other 50% have to come from all denominations or whatever, all inclusive. And he spoke out about this before he became education secretary, saying this is wrong. You know, Catholics should be allowed to have 100% Catholic children in there. Uh, the Islamic schools should ha- should be allowed to have 100%, you know, blah, blah, blah. And um, when he came into... And I and I sort of sit on the fence about it because um, I get the fact if you're a Catholic school, you just want Catholic children. If you're an Islamic school, you just want... I, why would you not? I don't see why it's a problem because... Um, just don't send your children there if you don't want your children to go there. Yeah. So when he came into power, all the, the Catholic lobbyists, uh, which are very powerful, were very, very pleased. And he actually he's, he actually said no. So he's kept it as it is. They thought he was a he is a he is keen on grammar schools. That got pushed to the back burner because of the 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 um the last election result. He seems to be talking up this idea that teachers are the workload for teachers are too much. I like what he's saying. Nothing's uh, shown up in policies yet, but we're not going to see that well, until, until the next general election. Yeah. And so he's probably coming in at a very good time to be education secretary because no one's listening to him. Yeah, you can kind of, you can kind of <laughs> quietly do what he wants. And- yeah. There's too there's too much other noise in the political uh, sphere yeah. at the moment. He's drowned out. So, I'm just, so would you coming into the teaching when you did as a teacher? Do education secretaries bother you? Do you do you think? Oh, do you take an interest in them? Because I think when I was a, when I first began as a teacher, I don't think I did have that much interest with them. It's only as I've become, you know, a on part of the senior leadership team and the deputy and head teacher, I have a real interest in them now. I think it's one of those, as, as a still relatively new teacher, a lot of the time, you know, you're focused on what you're doing in the classroom. Um, and I suppose where I'm kind of lucky is having come in just after Gove means I haven't had to change the the way that we teach. I haven't had to, I've worked with only the same curriculum since I've started teaching. Um, I like to take a, a slight interest in them. I think it's important to know to keep 
in touch with, with policy that is happening in the sector that you work in. Um, but no, I, I'm not, I'm not someone that, you know, is constantly, uh, you know, doing loads of sort of diving into what they've, the policies they've produced, etc. Um, for me, I just like to see someone that really gets what we do. I think there's such a disparity between what they think we do, what people think we do in, in general society. I think teaching in the UK has got kind of this kind of, not negative connotation, but um, in other countries around the world, teachers are like very highly respected. Um, you know, they're up there with lawyers and doctors as an important role, uh, particularly in Asia, actually. Um, Why do you think that is? In, because, because teachers because, because in this of, because country they, used they, to be. They provide the, the access for children. And so parents, you know, want their children to do well and teachers provide the ability for them to do that. Um, you know, no one wants to go back to a time when, when we didn't have schools um, mm. and we were all uneducated and only the elect few could read and write. No one wishes that to come back. Mm. Um, so I do think we are in the UK in this kind of, you know, teachers, or we get the holidays, don't you? And you, you know, you've got it easy. Um, I'd invite anyone to come and step into my classroom. And... So let me ask you this question. We can sort of finish finish off around this question now. You've been teaching four, four years, years now, right? Fourth, okay. Yeah. Is it what you thought it was going to be? Um, as in, is it is it easier than you thought? Harder than you you thought? You've already said you you enjoy it because you're yes. you're still here. So that's yes, yeah, that's I'm, that's really my really good. Still there. I Do you get up on right a Monday reasons. morning and think, oh? No, no, I don't. I'm generally, I mean, waking up, I'm, I'm not a particular fan of in general, but it's not <laughs> it's not a dread of coming into school ever. Um, you know, I enjoy spending time with my class. I enjoy spending time with the kids. Um, our school has got a particularly nice environment, I feel. Mm. Um, nice atmosphere around the building most of the time. It's a nice place to be. It's mm. a nice place to work. Um, and again, it's that kind of, without kind of over, kind of going too much into it. It is that. It's a job that is very emotionally satisfying at times. Sometimes on the other end as well, can be quite emotionally draining. Um, but I think... You know, it's generally a job that when I go home each day and I sit down, you know, and I take my teacher hat off, um, generally I feel like, yeah, that's a good, you know, I've done something good worthwhile today. Whereas I hear a lot of my friends that work, say, in the private sector, planning or uh, for, you know, financial companies, I'm not sure if they get that same satisfaction, that same kind of fuzzy, and not to kind of cliche it, but that same kind of, you know, um, warm feeling about what they're doing. I, find, I think if I was working that kind of office, I just be, wouldn't care because it ultimately doesn't matter. I'm just yeah. kind of pushing money around or keeping, you know, just systems in place for the sake of it. Yeah. I, I felt when you came to the school, if I may say, there was a bit of, and I could be wrong, I could have read, read this totally wrong, that there was a bit of despondency from you, from where you had been, that, that teaching... You, you weren't totally happy with... Well, no, maybe, I, maybe it was the environment that you found yourself I, in. I, I don't think, know. I think after my second year, I was definitely thinking about leaving the job. I'd been at a school that... Um, it was a nice school to work in in many respects, but I just think there wasn't enough kind of a real kind of focus or drive forward for the school. It felt like we were constantly doing things last minute. Like we got, we got Ofsted in. And I remember everyone was scrambling around to like 11 p.m. And I thought, this is so wrong. 
that we're putting on this almost facade of what of what we do here at, at my, my, my first school. And it just felt kind of so pseudo and fake that I, yeah, I was thinking, is this really what it is? Mm. Um, I was also at a faith school and my own personal beliefs, I don't um, personally think that religion in a secular school should mm. have such a sort of waiting. And it. you're atheist? Yeah, I prefer the yeah. term humanist, but... A hum- yeah. Well, talk to me the difference. What's the, what would you say? Well, I'd say that for me personally, it's just that I don't like the term atheist because mm. it's someone that doesn't believe in God mm. um, and you know, ultimately doesn't believe in religions. Um, the atheist puts the term theism as kind of... It gives it a position which I don't believe it has um, kind of as the counterpoint. Mm. I would argue there's no word to not believing in elves or fairies or unicorns. I'm not an a-unicornist because I don't believe in unicorns. So I don't know why I'm an atheist because I don't believe in mm. a theistic God. Um, so I think the term humanist also has connotations of doing good because it's good to do good. And it's kind of the reason I'm a nice person, the reason I do nice things is not because there's anything telling me I should for like, because I might suffer eternal damnation. But just because it's the nice thing to do, mm. my morals are judged mm. on humans, and our intera- my interactions with humans decides what I think mm. is morally acceptable and morally unacceptable. Mm. Um, which is why I think it's a, it's a it's a term that I think a lot of people that don't believe in God choose over atheism. I think that's a great place to stop, uh, Jordan. Thank you so much. Thank you for having and, me. And um, who knows where you're going to be in twenty years? Who knows. Who knows? I'll probably be dead. But anyway. I don't want to think that. No. All right. Thanks, Jordan. Thank you.